So that's what that was about. I thought it was Johnny Cash Day at church there for a while. Everybody in there black, that was awesome. Thank you for blessing us with that Christmas music. So beautiful. Two ladies have been out Christmas shopping. And their, uh, their patience had grown a bit short with each other and with just the hassles of, of, of all that comes with that. And they, they were downtown outside this huge picture window. And they decided just from the hustle and bustle of it all just to stop and take in some of those decorations that someone had spent so much time putting together. So they, they walked past the first window, you know, and there was Santa and all of his elves and the workshop and all, you know, reindeer the, the whole nine yards, the Grinch was in there. And, and then they went to the next one, and it was a, a really kind of a simple display of, of, of uh, clay figures of uh, baby Jesus and um, the shepherds and uh, the animals in the stable and the star hung up high. And one of the ladies turned to the other and frowned her face and said, Isn't that just like those folks, the church trying to horn in on Christmas? What is the reason for the season? Jesus is the reason. That's absolutely right. But you know, I, I, I like the fact that in any of this Christmas celebration, you can't look at it with a penetrating eye and not find traces all the way back to the truth. I, I love Nick's story because it's a, a true story. He was born in a town called Patera in Asia Minor. He was born to fairly wealthy parents, but those parents soon passed away, but not before passing along to him a rich embrace of the Christian faith. Because he was an orphan, he then moved to Myra and grew up in that town and had quite a reputation of walking as a Christian there, so much so that when it came time for a bishop to be elected for Myra, he was the one that they selected. He was imprisoned. Under Diocletian, when the persecution broke out, he was freed by Constantine, having endured that prison, still to live his faith with abandon and passion. He was known for his generosity and his compassion. He was known to go out into the streets to beg for food, not for himself, but for the poor. He was known to give secret sacks of gold to young girls so that they would have a hope that they now with a dowry could be married, fulfill their dreams. He would often put on a disguise, don a disguise, and walk through the streets playfully calling the children out, which were usually shy, in order to give to those poor kids some gifts of cheer. He died at a young age, 34, in 314 A.D., and his story has been spread around the world since then. The church that you'll see most often throughout Europe and Asia, one of the most popular names for any local church is still St. Nicholas. The poet Clement Moore added to his legend, or in legendary form, added to it, he gave him a red nose and eight tiny reindeer. Thomas Nast, the illustrator, made him round and jolly with a red suit and a fur-trimmed hat. 
His name has morphed through the years from Saint Nicholas to Saint Claus to Chris Kringle. But still, all of those traditions and legends point back to a truth that there was once a time when one lived with such compassion and generosity and charity, such self-giving love that ripples of his life are still known today. And if you want to trace that life to its real origin, you have to go back 314 years before Nicholas died. Not to Nick, but to God. Who loved so much that he gave. He gave his only begotten son. It's all tied together. We need not resent it. If you trace it back far enough, you still come to the reason for the season. And that's Christ. Andrew Wireman discovered that early. He was at a nursing home. He was a pastor. And he asked a fairly innocent question that really started him pondering. He asked the people in the nursing home, what is your favorite Christmas memory? And they were all different. All the memories were different except in this one aspect. All the memories were from their childhood. Their favorite memories weren't from when they were parents with kids, but when they were kids themselves. And as he searched for his top Christmas memory, he came to a time in childhood too when he was seven years of age. He lived in the Bronx at the time, and it was his mom's uh, routine to take the boys, he and his brother, out for a Christmas Eve treat while dad put Christmas together back home on Christmas Eve. And so they were out for that routine Christmas treat. And when they came back to uh, the Bronx in their fifth floor apartment, when they opened the stairwell, they heard an unusual sound that they'd never heard in the apartment before. It was the sound of a, of a shrill whistle, and it seemed to be coming from upstairs. They dashed up the stairs, and it was still coming from down the hall where, where they lived. They ran to their apartment. It was coming from inside. They burst through the door, and there was their dad. Andrew says, playing with the largest Lionel train set he has ever seen. And it was glorious. He was more than 50 years later, a much older man, and still his favorite Christmas gift of all time was that Lionel train. He still had it in a special place in the attic, a place where treasures are kept safe. But he came to realize later on that that Lionel train set was not really the gift that his parents gave him that Christmas. The gift that his parents gave them was an extravagant, unconditional love. And that train set just pointed to their love and care that he became certain of in many other days and in many other ways and in many other times. And he came to realize that that's not how far you can trace it back. It's not just their love. Their love was a gift that had been prompted by God's gift. The gift of a child in a manger. Even their love prepared his heart someday to recognize the real love of his heavenly parents. And in some ways, I think in all of our Christmases are those little seeds of truth planted, you know? 
Don't diminish the joy on your child's face because they get their favorite toy. That is not unspiritual. That is your heart extended to them. And I bet your love mirrors the love of their Heavenly Father that someday they may come to know just as Andrew did. So all these memories that you make, all these traditions that you keep, if they point back, if they can be traced back, if they're a shining light to his love, celebrate them with reckless abandon, I say. This is Christmas time. It's the time for us to celebrate the greatest gift that this world has ever received and the greatest gift that each one of us personally can receive, the gift of God's Son who so loved the world that he gave that whosoever. Do you hear the star and the stable stretch in that? For God, almighty God, so loved the world. Now, all that's already focused from the cosmos down to this little planet. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever. That's as specific as who sits in your seat this morning. That whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He came to give us this great gift. I don't know when that spirit of Christmas has touched your heart this this year already. We could probably share stories just as they did in the nursing home that day. But but I would highlight the day that uh, our youth took the blankets as a day where the Christmas spirit was seen. Blankets that you had supplied for those kids in, in the children's home this year or the rice when it arrives in Nepal to take care of those pastors who are still proclaiming the name of Christ in a dark land. Or maybe it was in the caroling of home teams as they showed up at your house and reminded you that you're on God's mind and on their heart. Or maybe it was Christmas letters those wonderful Christmas letters. Do you get those? Do you get those from your friends that um, I've got a love-hate relationship with those letters, don't you? I, I, I love the letters from those people that have the perfect lives, you know. And uh, Christmas is their time to kind of display that. Um, but even in that, you know, even through my cynical lenses, I'm still thankful that a friend hasn't forgotten me, that, that I'm still on their list. But this, this morning, we're in the midst of Christmas focusing on some different letters. Not letters from Santa or letters to Santa, but letters to the saints from Christ himself. He dictated them to John on the island of Patmos in Revelation, a different letter to seven different churches. It was specific. It gets personal. And many of the things that Christ has to say to these churches that are now in that same place in history, really, that we are, we live in the parenthesis between God having come in Jesus and God having promised to come again. And they were in that place. And Jesus was teaching them how, with the spirit of Christmas, 
especially at Christmas, if we know he's come and he's kept his promise from prophets, how much more will he keep his promise from the Messiah himself to return someday? We live not only looking back with the memory of Christmas and cherishing all that God has said to us through it, but we look forward someday to that same Christ breaking through the skies and calling us home. We look forward whether or not we see that particular event, waiting for the one who says that he goes to prepare a place for us, that where we are, we might be with him also, and he comes to take us to that place. Even in the span of our lifetimes, there will come an end where we will be face-to-face with this king. It's more than Christmas that we need to be ready for. It's Christ's return. And so this morning in Revelation chapter 2, I want to pick up the pace a little bit and actually read two letters to you. One is the longest letter that was written to the church at Thyatira. It's the longest letter, but it's to the most insignificant place. And then one to Sardis, a city of, uh, of great wealth. And here's how it reads. And to the angel of the church at Thyatira, right? The Son of God, who has eyes like a flaming fire and his feet are like burnished, polished bronze, says this. Now, who's he talking about there? Who is speaking? This is Jesus. If you look back into the first chapter, that's exactly how John describes him, okay, in this vision of heaven. And so it's Jesus himself, the Son of God, who is speaking these words. And he says to, to us through John, he says, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance. And you don't find this in any of the other letters. I love this line. And that your deeds of late are greater than they were at first. I like that. I want to be one of those kind of people. May faithfulness even find greater momentum. That's my hope. All the days of our lives. And we can live that way because the best is always yet to come. We live anticipating a face-to-face audience with our king. If I can see through the tears, I'll read the rest of it here. But he says, uh, I have this against you. In every one of these letters, there's not only commendation, there's also something about which God calls them to repent. But he says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray as they commit acts of immorality and eat things which have been sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent. And she doesn't want to. She doesn't want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will uh, kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts 
and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Deeds, not intentions. According to your deeds. What, what I say to you, who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they are called, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And the one who overcomes and the one who keeps the deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with an iron hand as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I who have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just to that church, but to all churches. And here's the shortest one is Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, a reputation, that you are alive and you are dead. 